sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast Warning, the following program may contain traces of irony, sarcasm, satire, parody, mockery, banter, caricature, and nuts. The opinions expressed are almost certainly not shared by self-appointed officials, dictatorial wowsers. If you are dangerously irony deficient or allergic to mockery of the self-important and corrupt, then get a life. And this would be Environmental As Anything. Welcome to another Saturday afternoon jam-packed with all the news on Mother Earth. Well, maybe not all the news, but as much as we can cram in, obviously a huge week every week uh, for news for the Earth, and we do our best to get you the highlights at least. Uh, thank you to Monkey and the Fish, as always, for the uh, Hand in Hand, our, our wonderful theme music. We really appreciate uh, the beautiful song. And also want to say thank you and acknowledge the Bunjalung Nation and the Widjibal people on whose land we work and live. Uh, here uh, in the Widjibal country, uh, we acknowledge elders past, present and emerging. And um, I personally always like to say thank you for being such great hosts and uh, such tolerant landlords. Uh, sorry for the mess uh, that's been created. I'm committed to doing my best and I know most of us out there uh, who are listening are all committed to doing our best to try to clean up the appalling mess that the party has caused thus far. But uh, here we are. Uh, it's been a great party and, uh, you know, there are good times to come uh, once we get this mess under control. Uh, environmental as anything this week? Well, look, big show, obviously. We always like to have a big show for you. Uh, I'm going to launch in with uh, the Bureau. Is gonna, has got the Climate and Water Outlook. I've uh, got uh, Greta Thunberg uh, speaking to the World Economic Forum, her address to the World Economic Forum uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, I have uh, a conversation that I had with Ian Lowe, Professor Ian Lowe, uh, for the Climate Council, talking about their new uh, report, the Hitting Home report, uh, that uh, talks about the huge economic costs of climate inaction, of our, of our current policy of failure to act uh, on uh, cli the climate emergency and uh, the, uh, the huge economic potential for uh, taking positive and proactive steps in that direction. Ian Lowe, obviously a, a great uh, Australian and a, and a terrific voice for uh, rational policy. Then uh, we'll be uh, talking to Eve Sinton. I know it's only been a couple of weeks since we spoke to Eve, but uh, it's January and the brand new Fossil Fool Bulletin is hot off the press. So we thought we'd catch her early in the month this time around and, uh, yeah, get the updated news on what's going on in the Fossil Fool scene. Um, we'll also be looking forward to uh, speaking to Kate Fairman who's going to be ringing, well, I'm going to be ringing her, we'll speak live about the upcoming, the Koala uh, inquiry, which is ongoing, and the uh, upcoming deadline for uh, submissions to the Koala inquiry. So if you haven't already made a submission to the Koala inquiry, uh, get online to the uh, the Environmental as Anything Facebook page. Now would be a good time while, we're, while you're listening in. And uh, there's a link there. 
to the the Northeast Forest Alliance uh, uh, has a, has created a guide for people to make it really easy uh, to make a, a, a powerful submission. Any submission is better than none. A short submission that tells how you feel is really important. And uh, you know we've got to get in and try to put uh, you know get to bed down these great promises, which so far have turned to nothing, of doubling our koala populations in New South Wales. The uh, the Environment Minister Matt Keane and uh, the Premier Bla- uh, Gladys Berejiklian, full of good promises. So far, no really effective action on that front. So yeah, get in and make uh, your submission today uh, before the deadline runs out and share it with your friends. Let everybody know. But we'll be talking to Kate Fairman, who's actually the chair of the committee in the New South Wales Upper House, uh, and she'll be telling us uh, more about that later on. First up today on Environmental As Anything, we'll be talking to Eve Sinton from the Fossil Fool Bulletin, who's the very capable editor of the, that fantastic journal, and uh, catching up with the, uh, the latest uh, on the Fossil Fool Bulletin for January. Eve Sinton, thank you so much for joining Environmental As Anything again. It's great to be here, Sean. We've managed to get you twice in January, once for the December edition of the uh, Fossil Fool Bulletin, but now we've got the January edition hot off the press. I thought it's uh, timely that we get you in to talk us through the the, the headlines for that uh, for, for that amazing publication. Yeah, it's been a, a, a lot of news, even though it's been holiday time. Uh, so I had I really had to shoehorn it all in. Uh, there was a, yeah. so much happening. Oh, I can see that. It's it's extraordinary. Um, the, uh, the the Santos lobbied for a pipeline is the first is the opening headline in the story. It's it's a it's a pretty big uh, a pretty big story about uh, fossil fuel subsidies, isn't it? Yes, um, of course. The National COVID nineteen Commission, as we know, is stacked with gas people, and Santos didn't waste any time getting on to them and. Uh, it's basically asking or lobbying for low-cost finance for pipelines from from the Narrabri gas field. Um, you know, they look because they want to get that gas to Newcastle. So, you know, they're asking for taxpayer money. If the gas industry was such a success, they wouldn't need subsidising, and I don't think uh, we should be subsidising the finance for for the pipeline. They're going to have a big job getting that pipeline up anyway because it's going to go through a lot of farmland and uh, this you know, presents huge environmental issues just on its own. Absolutely. I mean, the the, uh, the Scummer regime says that uh, uh, renewables don't need uh, subsidies anymore because they're a mature uh, technology, but apparently uh, fossil fuels still still eligible. That's right. Um, you know, what it's just crazy, and it, and it kind of leads on to another story on page three, um, that miners are the top among um, for the top ten political donors in the country. Um, there's an outfit that's Centre for Public Integrity have got the figures, and Santos is number four on the list. Uh, Santos, you know, has donated millions and millions of dollars to political parties um, in recent years. And this, of course, they expect favourable treatment for that, so they feel quite entitled to ask for money for their pipeline. Um, you know, yeah. it, it's a loot. Yeah. yeah. 
It's a, it's it's like spending a, a one and a half million bucks on getting access to the politicians who are going to give you billions. Oh, that was the question I was going to ask you about the Santos lobbying. Do you know um, how much they're looking for for that pipeline? No, I don't have a figure for that, um, but it would be a hell of a lot of money. Um, and there's there's a Hunter pipeline company that want, would actually wants to build it. Uh, you know, for Santos, um, but I don't have a figure, but it, it would be massive. It's it's a long, many, many kilometres, hundreds of kilometres, and, uh, you know, they build, they have about a 50 metre wide easement for these things where they just bulldoze everything and then dig a trench. It's terribly destructive. Mm. Um, you know, it's upsetting a lot of farmers because uh, it's going to go right, you know, carve up their land. You can't... Um, for example, if you put a pipeline in a wheat field, you can't drive your heavy farming machinery over the top of that. No. Um, so you might find your wheat fields being cut in half. Um, mm. So, yeah, no, the, it's a real problem, and it, it, it kind of makes you angry. But, uh, yeah. But well, the government as, as, things up like that. Well, that's right. And as the uh, uh, the spokesperson in the in the story says, it's, uh, you know, it's it's... It's actually the, the end of the day, the gas pipeline's likely to leak. It's likely to cause the same damage and pollution pipelines have already caused elsewhere around the world. And it's ultimately likely to lead to expensive court battles. Uh, you know, uh, building this pipeline, let alone subsidising, is poor practice for people's health and well-being. And, uh, you know, that seems to be a fairly obvious conclusion. But it's funny also, you know, like all, all of the first three stories in the Fossil Fool Bulletin this week do deal with this kind of, uh, these issues. New South Wales, green lights, a billion tons of pollution, which which uh, which I found extraordinary. Yeah, it, it is just gobsmacking, and you know how they are just not taking the climate impact into account when they make their decisions. Um, the minister for planning in New South Wales has pretty much kneecapped the in, so-called independent planning commission that makes these decisions. Mm. Um, because they they did once have the nerve to turn down a mine on the climate grounds, and so now they are really being pushed to compromise on climate. Um, their, their decisions really can't be regarded as independent or objective any longer, and, and the public has been deprived. It used to be able to make merits appeals on these things, but they've pretty much excluded that avenue for people to object. So the whole uh, thing is tilted in favour of, of the miners and, yeah. and the drillers. And, and, the, and the planning department refuses to, expect, uh, to accept responsibility for the greenhouse contribution of mining projects. I mean, despite longstanding law requiring it to do so. That's, a, that's an amazing feature of this whole uh, ridiculous situation, isn't it? It is, you know, and I don't know how, you know, whether that can be taken to a high court or something in due course, um, but it's very unsatisfactory. Uh, and, of course, it, the, um, the Minerals Council has been pushing uh, the planning department on, on these issues very hard, mm. and they're one of the most influential lobbying bodies in Australia tremendously powerful um and so they're pretty much pushing through whatever they want with the government mm. and and we're talking about like you know projects a single project here united wombo i've never even heard of to be honest but it's like uh, 266 million tons of carbon pollution 370 million tons from the vickery coal project 
you know, 337 from Maxwell underground and, and Santos, which is we're all outraged about, is, is a relatively small in this list of 128 million tonnes. I mean, they're, they're so massive. It's, 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 it's hard to even begin to comprehend how much they're, uh, they're, they're proposing to pollute. Absolutely. And, and there's three coal mines pending, all of which have big figures like 256 million tonnes for the expansion of dendrobium, which is uh, down in the Illawarra area. Um, there's another one with 107 million tonnes, the one with 94. So if they approve, and, and they, you know, if they just keep approving stuff like that, we have just no chance of uh, warding off the worst effects of climate change. Mm. So it's really dangerous. Deadly dangerous. Very dangerous. And again, we yeah. come back to page three of the, the bulletin where the miners top political donors, you know. So why do they keep getting approved for these appalling uh, uh, proposals? Oh, well, just guess what? They've put in hundreds of millions of dollars into uh, political donations. It, uh, well, that's right. Of course, the, the biggest one is mineralogy, which is Clive Palmer. And number two is Queensland Nickel, which is another Clive Palmer company. So, you know, just that single very rich man is throwing just the most massive monetary weight around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah, even though his political party didn't win any seats, he can drive um, the coalition policy um, indirectly with all that influence that he has. Absolutely. You chuck 120 million bucks on the table, people sit up and pay, ten, pay attention, don't they? They sure do, you know. Um, and, well, we just have to get mining dona donations out of politics, but I don't see any chance of that happening as things stand. Um, but we have to keep fighting it. Um, oh, yeah. One, one day, day it'll happen. It's, you know, there was, there was no, nobody would have believed it was possible to remove, uh, uh, you know, developer donations from the political equations but uh, you know that that has been done uh, in, in New South Wales at least and uh, it's certainly uh, you know that's certainly able to, to make these changes as we change governments aren't they that's right so I think we just have to keep uh, making a lot of noise about it and eventually you know it's like water dripping on a stone we'll get somewhere yeah sometime. All right, so the other story that I wanted to quickly mention before we, uh, we have to cut it off, we've got in our last minute, we've got uh, Adani rips up its land before protecting the finch habitat. So this is a, a, a shocking uh, indictment of the whole process there, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, those poor little finches are just going to be wiped out because their prime habitat was the, exactly the Adani land. The, the, the concept of offsets to preserve species is pretty dodgy anyway. Oh. and uh, But now um, they don't even have to secure that land for several more years, you know, but they're already ripping up the habitat. So um, what the birds are supposed to do in the meantime, yeah. who knows? But yeah. <laughs> I, I think they're going to be disappear. Um, there, are, there are people who breed them, you know, in aviaries, and they might be the only ones left within mm -hmm. a short time, which is really sad. And, and of course, it's not, um, you know, I, I'm a very attached to that little black-throated finch, but there is an ornamental snake, a yakka skink, and a squatter pigeon, all endangered. Yeah, it's, it's just a travesty. 
which mm. really makes you sad. Absolutely. Well, look, Eve, we're pretty much out of time, but, uh, you know, there is so much more that we could go through this. Uh, again, the Fossil Fuel Bulletin really uh, covering all the really important stories. Um, if anybody wants to get hold of it, how do, how do they get a copy? Um, they can go to the Knitting Nanas website, which is knitting-nanas.org, and most back issues are there. And if they want to subscribe, they can just send an email to fossil.full.bulletin at gmail.com. Just put the word subscribe and your name in there and I'll put you on the mailing list. It's free, so anybody can afford it. Free and, and easy to, uh, to very beautifully formatted for print, so you can easily print them off and put them in places where you know people will see them at your local cafe or uh, you know waiting rooms and stuff like that. Uh, terrific reading. People really should, uh, should have these in front of them. Thank you so much, Eve, for putting all the effort you do into uh, producing this. It's a fantastic pub publication. Well, thanks for, for having me on, Sean. That's been great. No, I always look forward a pleasure. To talking to you again. Always a pleasure, Eve. Okay. We'll look forward to hearing from you uh, when, when the next bulletin's out. You are tuned into Environmental as Anything. Next up, we will be playing the Climate Council's new Hitting Home, the Compounding Costs of Climate Inaction report, which shows that climate change impacts and sea level rise could cost the Australian economy $100 billion every year. I spoke to Climate Councillor Professor Ian Lowe of Griffith University, who has been working for the last 40 years on aspects of energy supply and the use and environmental consequences such as climate change as well as the broader issue of sustainable futures. And I asked him to walk us through the report. Ian Lowe, thank you for joining Environmental as Anything again today. Pleasure, mate. Appreciate having you here. It was very interesting to hear you on uh, the radio the other day talking about the doomsday clock and what the, the movements are on, on the doomsday clock. Can you give us a quick uh, explainer on the doomsday clock? What, what is it and what is its, uh, its intent? Yes, uh, the, the history is that when the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists moved on from being an internal newsletter among scientists who'd worked on the atomic bomb project that uh, produced the nuclear weapons that ended World War II, when it became a more public document, they put a stylized clock on the front cover, which was set at seven minutes to midnight. And the purpose of that was to warn people that because nuclear weapons were so much more powerful than any bombs that had previously existed, that there was a real risk that uh, a nuclear war would mean, as they put it, midnight for civilization. And uh, the clock, when they first produced it in 1947, was set at seven minutes to midnight. Mm. Uh, at that point, remember, the only nuclear weapons in the world were those that the USA possessed and had left over from the end of World War II. Then what's now Russia, the then Soviet Union, also developed nuclear weapons. And so the clock was moved closer to midnight because there was a real possibility that nuclear weapons would be used in a war. And as nuclear weapons became more powerful, and more widespread. Uh, France got bombs, the UK got bombs, China got bombs. The hand was moved closer to midnight. About 50 years ago, the UN negotiated a non-proliferation treaty 
And the idea was that the states that then had nuclear weapons would systematically disarm, and in return, the other countries uh, of the world would not develop them. Great idea in principle. The problem was that the weapon states did not systematically disarm, and so other countries slowly and systematically acquired nuclear weapons. First India, then Pakistan, then Israel, more recently North Korea, and at the moment there's concern in the Middle East that Iran is enriching uranium towards weapons grade. Uh, so the hand started moving closer to midnight, and the warning basically was that uh, nuclear weapons are no, now so powerful and so widespread that uh, either a deranged leader or a failure of communication or just um, a mix-up, an inadvertent mistake, mm. could lead to catastrophic nuclear war. Mm. And to put that in context, I mean, the world has been shaken by the coronavirus pandemic, which has now killed about 2 million people. But more or less any one of the 10,000 nuclear weapons that are deployed and ready for use uh, could literally in a flash wipe out that many people by uh, destroying one of the world's major cities. Throughout most of its history, the doomsday clock focused on nuclear weapons and the threat they posed to civilization. But in 2007, they added to that a warning that climate change was uh, also existential risk, that climate change if uncontrolled could also lead to the collapse of civilization. And um, in the 14 years since 2007, they've steadily moved the hand closer to midnight because uh, both those issues, nuclear weapons and climate change, have uh, worsened. Uh, more countries have weapons, more leaders have their fingers on the button. Uh, climate Greenhouse gas emissions that are causing climate change have continued to increase. And in both cases, there doesn't seem to be either the institutions or the political will to address the problem seriously. And uh, most leaders around the world seem to think that slowing down climate change would be a nice luxury as long as it didn't slow down economic growth. Mm. And most obviously prefer to act as if new nuclear weapons did not exist. Yeah. Um, and uh, countries that don't have nuclear weapons like Australia uh, often uh, act on the implicit assumption that somebody else would use nuclear weapons to defend us if we got into a shooting war. Mm. So, um, as really... If, as if as if the, that wouldn't be it's, it's, as if that wouldn't be worse than any threat that we might otherwise face. That, that's exactly right. I mean, it's uh, an obvious uh, issue of uh, morality and ethics. You know, Australians were shocked when a deranged person held a dozen people hostage in a cafe in Sydney and threatened to kill them unless their demands were met. But uh, basing your defence on nuclear weapons is basically holding whole populations hostage and threatening to kill millions of people if your demands aren't met. And that's clearly not. Uh, morally or ethically acceptable. and uh, But the real risk is that as long as there are nuclear weapons around the world, sooner or later, through misadventure or a deranged leader, somebody will use them. So effectively, the uh, they've upgraded the clock or updated the clock to reflect the climate emergency, which is a positive step forward. And uh, through the corona crisis, it seems that uh, they've it was at 100 seconds to midnight last year. Uh, I, I think my understanding is they've kept it at 100 seconds to midnight this year. They've um, kept it at 100 seconds to midnight, yes. And they said that the coronavirus temporarily slowed uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, so that uh, they were only marginally higher or maybe a bit lower in 2020 than they'd been in 2019. But they pointed out that 
um, most developed economies are saying that the coronavirus was a serious, it had a serious impact on their economy, and they now need to stimulate the economy to recover from the coronavirus. And they pointed out that the G20 countries between them have commendably committed about 160 billion US dollars investing in renewable energy technologies like solar and wind. Hmm. But alarmingly, they've also committed 240 billion US dollars, one and a half times as much, to expanding fossil fuel production. Oh. And uh, I said, you know, it really seems that most of the leaders just don't understand the seriousness of the climate emergency. The, the other issue they said that arose from the coronavirus pandemic and which um, uh, stayed their hands from moving the clock back back away from midnight was that uh, the coronavirus pandemic has revealed that there are widespread sources of misinformation that prevent leaders acting rationally on the best of um, and the consequences of the uh, flood of misinformation, uh, the infodemic, as they called it, was that in some countries, most obviously the USA and the UK, uh, leaders did not respond in a concerted way, acting on the best medical advice, and uh, huge numbers of people have died as a result. Mm. And they said that that that's a worrying sign that uh, in the modern world, leaders often will not act rationally because the flood tide of misinformation means there isn't the, the social will, the political will to take concerted action. So it's like media reform is one of the great uh, cr- uh, issues that that need addressing if we're going to uh, move forward and deal with the crises that, uh, that, that engulf us. That's absolutely right. I mean, if I'm trying to uh, sell you a bicycle and I misrepresent it, you have legal redress. But if I'm trying to persuade the public that they don't need uh, vaccination or they don't need uh, social distance or a mask, all they need to do is rub lemon juice on their face and hang their head out the window on a moonlit night, there is no legal redress for that sort of misinformation. Mm. If a politician or uh, an activist is prepared to say that we can, with impunity, build new coal-fired power stations, there is no legal redress Mm. uh, against that sort of misinformation. And uh, it seems bizarre that you know, we have legal protections against people misrepresenting their product if they're selling chocolates or stockings uh, or used cars, but uh, there is no legal redress against misinformation about the existential crises that we face as a civilization. Yeah, it seems to be uh, a lot of people waving around the banner of freedom of speech seem to believe they have the freedom to lie, uh, defame, threaten, abuse and defraud people. It's, uh, it, it's, it's not what freedom of speech is about at all, is it? No, it's not. I mean, freedom of speech uh, always had limits. I mean, the traditional argument is that it doesn't extend to the freedom to shout fire in a crowded theatre. Exactly. Um, but uh, what some people are saying about coronavirus and indeed about climate change is the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theatre. They are actively encouraging people to behave in a way that uh, will ensure that these critical problems aren't solved. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, it's sort of like sort of sort of sitting in the crowded theater and refusing to shout fire when it's burning, you know, is, is what they're, they're effectively <laughs> doing. Next, say, shut up, shut up. Don't say anything. Yes. I want to watch this film. <laughs> anyway, yes, yes. given our limits on time, that's very interesting. Thank you for clar- clarifying that about the, the doomsday clock. It's uh, obviously something that, uh, you know, we all need to be aware of. Uh, these these major uh, threats to our civilization, but uh, speaking of the major threats to our civilization, we still have uh, our, the compounding costs of climate inaction, and uh, the, uh, the the Climate Council has uh, put out uh, the report hitting home 
to talk about uh, the, uh, the, these, uh, the financial hit from climate change. Um, there, there were four key findings. And I just wanted to walk through them one at a time with you. First of all, right now, I mean, this is not, not projecting into the future, but, but right now we can talk about the costs of extreme weather in Australia. Um, you know, like it's almost doubled since the 70s. There's, yeah, what is that? $25 billion in the last decade. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was reminding somebody the other day that... Um, at the Kyoto Conference in 1997, which was the first uh, conference of the parties to the Climate Change Convention that said we need to set hard targets for people to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, at that time, the business community was almost universally lobbying against action. One commercial sector that was at Kyoto arguing we needed to take action was the insurance industry <laughs> because they said we can read the red ink on our balance sheet. Yep. In 1997, they were saying that adjusted for inflation, the cost of property damage in the first five years of the 1990s was greater than for all of the 1980s and greater than for the 1960s and the 1970s put together. Right. In other words, they said if the adjusted for inflation, the real cost of property damage is doubling every decade. And uh, that process is accelerated. So in Australia, the insurance industry has been one area that has been systematically trying to get politicians to take climate change seriously uh, because they can't adjust premiums fast enough. And there's a real risk that if they set realistic premiums, people in coastal properties or fire-prone areas or cyclone-prone areas, the properties will be unaffordable. Yeah. The people will not be able to their properties against damage and uh, so we will have the sort of situation that we've had in the last few years with the uh, the extreme summer fires of 2019-20 or uh, some cyclones in the north of Queensland that uh, people are una have been unable to insure their properties and so they've uh, they've lost out heavily. Yeah, so that I found found that particularly fascinating. That it's 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 not that's nothing to do with a projection into the future. That's that's a that's simply a, a, an accounting of of what's happened up till now. But the, the the report goes on to the next point, which is to say by twenty thirty eight, extreme weather events driven by climate change and and the impacts of sea level rise could cost the Australian economy a hundred billion dollars every year. That's right. I mean, the the fundamental point they're making is that um, I think this was their fourth point that no developed country has more to lose from the consequences of climate change than Australia. Mm. And conversely, no developed country has more to gain from taking concerted action than Australia because we are a large country with uh, almost unlimited resources of sun and wind and unlimited capacity not just to meet our own needs with clean technologies but also to export green energy to countries that uh, don't have the same sort of land area or renewable resources as we have. So huge, huge potential hit to the economy, $100 billion a year, uh, you know, within uh, most people's lifetimes. And uh, then, uh, you know, the potential loss of that massive economic opportunity of actually addressing the, the, uh, the, the, the climate emergency. And they're saying that by 2100, the annual deaths from extreme heat worldwide will outstrip all COVID-19 deaths recorded in 2020. So we'll get a, 20, we'll get a COVID-19 yeah. death rate every year. That's right. I mean, there are already significant uh, health problems from extreme events. I think the 
the 2003 summer heat wave in Europe killed 15,000 people in Paris alone. Climate change is already a serious health risk, and it's not just the extreme events like cyclones and bushfires and floods, just the fact that there are more very hot days uh, are forcing all sorts of changes. For example, the South Australian Cricket Association has now adopted a policy that it cancels junior cricket on days when the predicted maximum temperature is more than 39 degrees because uh, they said it's an issue of player safety, that uh, when it's that hot, you can't have enough drinks breaks for people to stay hydrated. So it's just not safe for people to be playing cricket. And um, we're going to see you know, more incursions into what we expect as the normal social fabric of uh, Australia if uh, we continue to ignore the impacts of climate change. I mean, I mean, goodness me, if it starts to affect the cricket, then surely people will take it seriously. That, that, that is important. You, you would think so. That's, that's right. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you would think that uh, even a coalition government would be worried if uh, climate change is affecting cricket. I mean, it's oh, yeah. no problem if it's uh, 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 d- doing damage to our rural industries or uh, causing coastal property to be uninsurable, but if it affects the cricket, well, we really have to do something about it. Well, all jokes aside, this looks like uh, an extraordinarily uh, useful report, and I'm hoping that it will get uh, people's attention and start, uh, you know, getting some action in those uh, halls of uh, power. Um, do, do what does the Climate Council uh, want to see happen now with this report? What do they? Where do they think this will go from here? I think they hope that the community will take it seriously and pressure our decision makers to. Uh, get off their collective backside and take some purposive action. The point they make, and I think this is the, the, the critical finding of their report, that transformative action is now needed, that uh, what we need globally is to halve the emissions of greenhouse gases by 2030 and eliminate them completely by 2040. They're talking about uh, using creative accounting to make it look as if we reduced our emissions by 26 to 28% by 2030 is just pathetically inadequate. Mm. Uh, So what we need now is a a concrete plan of action to uh, decarbonise our energy supply and use. Mm. And in those terms, The electricity industry is now the easy bit because um, when I was first talking about this in the 1980s, there was real economic cost to phasing out coal-fired power and replacing it with cleaner technologies like solar uh, or wind. But the CSIRO Energy Market Operator Report in 2018 pointed out that by far the cheapest form of new generating uh, capacity now is large-scale solar and large-scale wind. And even if you add enough storage for that to be firm capacity, Mm. it's still much less than the cost of new gas, about half the cost of new coal, and um, probably about a third of the cost of new nuclear if we were ever silly enough to go down that path. So there is now no economic reason not to be investing in renewables with storage. Uh, The next thing we need to address is transport, and uh, the entire transport system is based on petroleum fuels. Various countries in Europe have now set a date beyond which it will not be legally possible to register new petroleum-fueled vehicles, either petrol or diesel. I think the Netherlands is the first one, but 2025, which is only four years away. Um, But their argument is if you want to be zero carbon by 2040, and the average lifetime of vehicles is about 15 years, Mm. by 2025, you have to say no new vehicles using petroleum-fueled engines. And uh, other European countries have been uh, 
uh, less dramatic and have set 2030 or 2035, but we need to have a fixed date beyond which we will not allow petroleum vehicles. And finally, we need to end this nonsense that uh, gas, expanding gas, can be a sensible part of the transition. Uh, what this report says and what the climate science has been saying for at least a decade is no new fossil fuel project anywhere, anytime. Mm. So uh, expanding gas isn't part of the solution, it's part of the problem. We should be thinking now about how we replace the applications that currently use gas with green hydrogen, hydrogen produced by using renewable energy, so that we can effectively decarbonise the entire energy supply and use system. Well, it, it's, it's all perfectly feasible. If you think about the transition from horse and cart to the infernal combustion motor, it, it, it took about 15 years. Is to make that transition, we can do this uh, with uh, standing on our heads, I'd say. But uh, but I know that we've we've run out of time today to talk. I know you've got to go out and, and speaking of cricket, go out and actually umpire a cricket match, haven't you? Correct. Yes. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Yeah. I hope it doesn't get Thank too you. hot there. The forecast is quite pleasant for today, so uh, I can uh, umpire and stay cool. Stay safe, Ian. I really we really appreciate your uh, your contribution. Nice talking ah. to you, Sean. Next up, as promised, I have live on the line uh, Kate Fairman, uh, New South Wales MLC, uh, who is uh, the chair of the Koala Committee, the Koala Inquiry, which is ongoing in the New South Wales Parliament. And uh, from which I, I mentioned we've got uh, there's a, there's uh, submissions are due at the end of this week. But um, Kate, can you hear me? Hi, yes, I can. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for making time on a Saturday to join us again. Pleasure. Obviously, uh, huge uh, excitement and drama last year with the, uh, the the koala killer bill being put before the parliament and then rejected at the very last minute um, and going back to the inquiry. Yes, it's uh, basically that that bill that was such a shocker. Yes, remember Catherine Cusack crossed the floor after everybody's phone calls and emails, and I'm sure all of your listeners were part of that push, which was fantastic. So we now have uh, an opportunity to have a look at that very bad bill because it's been referred to the inquiry, which is the same uh, by the same committee that looked into the koalas in the first place. So I chair that. Uh, Catherine Cusack is on it, and uh, we're very much looking forward forward to really investigating that bill to see what it was going to do because the government said it's dead but importantly we need to know what they wanted to do we need to make sure that doesn't happen and to be honest we just need to shed a bit of light on what the government's intentions really were well they've made all sorts of promises if if they want to actually move forward with doubling the koala populations of new south wales they're going to need a koala saving bill aren't they well, they are, considering uh, all of their activities since the uh, pretty gruesome finding of the Koala Inquiry uh, in July last year when it was released, the report, sorry, end of June last year, that everybody knows now that koalas will become extinct before 2050 unless the government takes urgent action. And, of course, that means stopping the ongoing loss and fragmentation of their habitat. But everything the government has done since then uh, has seemed to indicate that they haven't been 
listening. Of course, we've got ongoing logging. We've got bad developments happening in koala habitat. So, yes, and this bill was going to be the icing on the cake, really, allowing private native forestry and development to kind of occur uh, even in places where they haven't um, been able to occur. And, uh, yeah, it was going to be a free-for-all pretty much. Yes. So rather than the free for all, they've they've gone ahead and made a response to uh, the uh, the consensus recommendations of your inquiry, and uh, you've you've said that they've basically failed to adopt your consensus recommendations. They have no plans to save the koalas from extinction. Yeah. Look, when I look at the government response to the report, it seems as though the environment minister and the environment department has had a look at it and said, oh, look, we'll deal with that in this new koala strategy that they're looking at releasing early this year, by the way, which is going to be interesting to see what's in there. Um, But pretty much all the other government departments that really have to step up to the mark, like the planning department, like uh, uh, local land services, we need to obviously look at land clearing. Um, All of those just it was absolutely business as usual they said noted to a lot of uh, the core recommendations which i said was basically uh, meant really rejected um so we're continuing to lobby the government around what its intentions are let's remember so there's the inquiry which um is taking place we'll talk about that in a second in terms of making submissions but there's also Gladys Berejiklian tasked the government, so Rob Stokes, the Liberal Party planning minister, and John Barillaro, the deputy premier from the Nats, basically charged them to go away and to come back with something that would protect the interests, would protect koalas and, quote, the interests of farmers. So that's what we're dealing with this year. We actually are going to get something coming out in a couple of months that is going to be the new policy to protect koalas. So this inquiry process, I think, is quite critical because we'll be able to um, really expose what their intention was and to put a lot of pressure on the fact that they were prepared to open up a lot of koala habitat mm-hmm. to the loggers and to um, the um, uh, to the loggers, to developers, and of course to the farming lobby. Yeah, it, I mean, it seems it seems like a no-brainer that you should be able to come up with a policy that uh, protects the actual interests of koalas and the actual interests of farmers. They're uh, very much in line in many key respects, aren't they? Well, they absolutely are, and most landholders, of course, actually love having koalas on their property. They they recognise that healthy vegetation, healthy rivers, uh, healthy soils, all of that, obviously thriving biodiversity that means koalas want to be there as well if there is of course koala feed trees there and koala um, habitat so it's absolutely vital that the farming i suppose the farming lobby is brought to the table with in some ways incentives it doesn't have to be this situation where Farmers get more money for chopping down koala habitat than they do for protecting it. And if this government is absolutely determined to double koala numbers by 2050, like they've said they're going to, they have to be creative. They have to be generous. They have to recognise that koalas have value, not just for tourism, but 
of course, you know, environmentally, because if we protect their habitat, we protect so much else. Absolutely. And that's right. Those financial incentives which are currently poured into subsidising uh, the, the native forest logging, if they were simply poured into protecting those areas, which, uh, you know, making it viable financially for those owners of forests to protect them for koalas, then then everybody's happy. We walk away golden, don't we? Exactly. And it's so important that that happens because we know that a lot of the timber now is becoming available on private land because state forests can't get as much timber um, from uh, public the public state forest. I'm sure you've talked about this on your program. Mm. Like it's it's uh, it's really scary what could happen over the next year if we don't uh, do something to rein in the potential for what will be an onslaught of logging on private land. We know that two out of three koalas or two or two thirds of koala habitat, in other words, is found on private land. So this is a big battleground. We can't forget about private land. I know everybody is passionate and. Uh, we need to get our public forests protected as well. But I tell you what, the, um, when we can't drop the ball when it comes to um, private forests either, or, or sorry, forests on, on private land. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, what is it now? What do people have to do to be able yeah. to help with this? Okay, so if people put into their search engine, because we don't say the G-O-O-G-L-E word <laughs> anymore, if people put into their search engine um, local land services bill inquiry, they should get um, to the New South Wales Parliament Upper House Committee's website where it actually has the inquiry website, the inquiry page. And the interesting thing with submissions here is that we've taken a slightly different approach. We are taking this time like a survey of um, people that can fill out all these different questions. And I know that NIFA, the Northeast Forest Alliance, has a submission guide for uh, how to answer these questions if people need a bit of assistance because some of it's quite technical. Also, if anybody's listening and they're part of an NGO or a council or a community group, they want to make a more detailed submission, they can. They should either contact me or the secretariat before the 5th of February. That's important as well. This all has to happen this week. This week. It has to be done by the end of, by Friday. Next week, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh, and so how long has the, the the inquiry got to run after that? We are we're having two hearings. So at, this is all hasn't actually uh, been public yet. The committee still has to agree on on a few things. But it looks like we'll have two days. We'll have a hearing in Sydney. We'll also have a hearing regionally, which we're hoping is going to be Clarence, because of course it was Chris Galatis from the Nationals uh, originally, and uh, Gurmesh Singh from the Nationals. Uh, Coffs Harbour and Clarence, who were, we think, uh, originally kind of pressuring on this. Mm. A lot of developer interest in that part of the world and private native forestry interests as well. So we're going there. So that's a good thing. Uh, Hopefully we want to get to the bottom of what really is behind or was behind this push for the koala killing bill. And we need to make sure that that's exposed. Yeah. Well, look, Kate, thank you so much for your time today and all of your, your efforts you, there in, in the Parliament for, uh, for our environment. And uh, we'll hopefully you can keep us up to speed with what, uh, what, what's going on with the, uh, the, the inquiry as it develops.
Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say thanks again to you and to all of your listeners because the work last year that everybody put into uh, giving koalas a voice was absolutely extraordinary. So uh, thanks, everybody, for that too. Yes, indeed. Thank you. All right, Kate, we'll talk again soon. Cheerio. Well, that was Kate Fairman live from Sydney um, where she uh, is in the as MLC, the Greens MLC, an upper house member uh, representing us all and our interest in protecting those uh, koalas and our forests, working hard as the uh, chair of that inquiry, uh, which is ongoing. So please uh, go to the Environmental As Anything Facebook page um, or go to the Northeast Forest Alliance Facebook page and you will find uh, links to an easy guide to making a submission. Get your submissions in now. Please share them around with your friends. As many submissions as possible are better. It may feel a little bit intimidating to be making a submission to a parliamentary inquiry, but it really isn't that big a deal uh, to be to be doing. It's, uh, you know, the simple and heartfelt uh, responses are the ones we really want. You are tuned into Environmental As Anything. Thanks for being with us today. And it's just about time to shine with Naomi. <laughs> uh, so, Naomi, how's your week been? Well, it's really woken up, even though it's, you know, hot and slumberish. There's a lot, lot the world is, uh, Lismore's lovely and quiet. I can tell you what, I've got no traffic worries. I can ride my bike everywhere. It's not too stinky. But, yeah, I'm not looking forward to a school starting up and the traffic getting congested. <laughs> oh, well, I know a few of the kids are looking forward to getting back to school, being able to socialise with their mates. No, it's going to be great. Yeah. School's great. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe not universally excited about that, but, uh, you know, there you go. (laughs) I'm uh, interested to hear what's coming up, though. What's Uh happening this week? Yes, well, it turns out to be a busy week. Of course. And uh, I've got about four events on Tuesday. And interestingly, uh, the 1st or the 2nd of February is the uh, uh, what's known in pagan terms as a Sabbath. So that's a halfway point every six or so weeks in the year. There's a it's halfway between the summer solstice and the spring equinox. Okay. So it's a halfway point in the turning of the year, and that happens to fall around February the first or second. Um, it's called Lammas on the pagan wheel of the year, in case you're interested. But it does happen that you know the solstices and the equinoxes and even these um, partway um, pagan festivals tend to be busy times. So. Mm. I'll um, launch off with tomorrow, uh, 2 p.m., meet at the top of Rifle Range Road for a uh, Bangalore Koalas support action to... um, It's a peaceful protest to uh, draw attention to the uh, private development happening on Rifle Range Road, right where uh, Bangalore Koalas for the last three years have been holding tree planting days and uh, building a, a... wildlife corridor to connect to areas of koala habitat and we've right. been doing that from scratch with tree planting what a brilliant project absolutely but this proposed uh, cha- change of um, zoning and a tourist development instead of res- residential home is going to uh, muck up that threatening all their good work mm, yeah so come down to Rifle Range Road in Bangalore and uh, we're all meeting at 2pm. I'm going along with a koala holding a stop sign sign. <laughs> and, uh, you know... If people need a more precise location than that, have we got it on the... Yes, it's on the... Um, 
as a, as a post on Environmental as Anything Facebook page. Great. Yes. And with more information because they want submissions to Byron Shire Council and those submissions guides are on there as well. Awesome work. So good to support that uh, hard work that those people have been doing out there. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening in who will be able to uh, relate to that, having been out there sweating in the sun and uh, in the rain, for that matter, planting trees and looking after the koalas. So they'll be out there uh, now protecting their hard Mm. work from uh, from a developer. It'll be great to meet the Bangalore koala people. Absolutely. Uh, okay, uh, on Tuesday, this is uh, Lamas. Uh, this is uh, the Channon Oval. At the Channon Oval, the uh, Channon Disaster Resilience Group will be f- firming up their draft disaster resilience plan. I'm planning to go along to that. So that's a really interesting workshop. And it would be lovely if we had more of that going on in Lismore as well about community planning for disaster resilience, how we can help each other and how we can plan for the worst because it's just going to keep happening. Yes, it's a whole field. Obviously, it's a speciality of yours in, in disaster resilience. It's a, it's a, it's an eye opener for me to realise how how much there is to all of that. Yeah, yeah, well, and uh, but also in Canberra, there'll be um, a couple of different groups planning to rally to meet the politicians as they come back to say no to the gas led recovery and yes to a green recovery. So that's a great thing that people are doing down there in Canberra, lining the 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 bit of Canberra where the cars drive in mm-hmm. and waving at the pollies coming to work with their <laughs> signs saying, you know, climate disaster, climate uh, emergency and all that sort of stuff. So good on you, Canberrans. Yep, and, yep. Uh, keep up the good work. Keep up the pressure on the uh, the scummo regime and the ALP for that matter to get their act together on climate. That's right. And also on Tuesday, the 2nd of February, uh, it's uh, World Wetlands Day. And I know that Jeff Reed, our colleague, was often running Jabiru Guinea wetlands uh, events on yes. uh, the uh, World Wetlands Day. I'm not sure that he's plan- uh, planned one for this year, but um, the World Wetlands Day people have got an online event. So take a picture of your favourite wetland, put a post up a picture of your favourite wetland or your favourite wetland bird. Um, with the hashtag World Wetlands Day, hashtag respect Ramsar, um, and also tag Bird Life Oz um, and the Environment Minister Susan Lay, that's the Federal Environment Minister. So this is to celebrate the fact that the Ramsar Convention has been signed 50 years ago um, in Ramsar in Iran in 1971. And it's a global treaty signed by now 170 countries on wetlands of international importance as waterfowl habitat. So it's all about, that's why BirdLife Oz is um, behind and uh, promoting this event. And it's a great thing. I mean, I, I love the good old swamp hens, pakekos, um, with their funny white flushing tails and their bright orange beaks. I mean, it's just oh, so many great wetlands birds. And we have one over there in Casino with the, uh, as part of the mini rail. And Jeff Reed has been instrumental in doing the land care work at oh. the site there. Wow. Mm. Beautiful. Yes, that's right. Uh, too often people think of the wetland as a swamp. It's, uh, some, it sounds like something nasty and dank. It, uh, the, sw- the wetlands are actually an extraordinarily rich and diverse and beautiful place. That's right. Yes, very usually a biodiverse because it's an edge between land and water, which is very productive even in nature. Yep. Hmm. And just as an aside, really, there's a regenerative culture event also on Tuesday, the 2nd of February. Uh, 10 a.m. to 12 noon at the Duck Pond Espresso Bar and it's coffee and community, a chance to talk about life, death and everything in between. Um, And it's run by Compassionate Communities Northern New South Wales 
uh, we all face different challenges in life, join us for a chat about what matters to you. It's a meeting um, that happens on the first Tuesday of every month and I've been to one and they're lovely. Yeah, yeah that is lovely. Good. Yeah. And then uh, Wednesday the 3rd of February, 10.30am at the Lismore Community Gardens, they're, they're having a a launch morning tea for their solar system, oh. which <laughs> consists of um, a couple of solar panels, not very big looking system, but they've got some new lithium ion batteries and it's all been attached and it's going to run the fridge for the morning tea oh. in the uh, shipping container there. Lovely. And Janelle will be there because um, it's been funded by a few different projects and yay for the Lismore Community Garden. Absolutely. Yay, the Community Gardens and yay getting the, the, uh, the standalone solar system up and running. I know. Able to have their morning tea drinks chilled by the sun. That's right. That's right. The milk for their cups of tea. Great. And then on Thursday, 10 a.m., um, mobs from NIFA and Save Banyamba Koalas are having a meeting, a uh, forest picnic at Myrtle State Forest, meeting at 10 a.m. at the forestry entrance at Myrtle State Forest. That sounds like fun. I know. There's been a fair bit of excitement about the Myrtle State Forest. Uh, there was a, uh, they were taken off the uh, the State Forest uh, Forestry Portal off their death list, and uh, yes, but there's still they still reckon that they're uh, they're coming back for more. But I think they've they've certainly been slowed down by all the community action that went on in uh, Myrtle uh, over the last uh, six nine months or so. That's right. Yeah. So. We'll post some more photos and make some more fuss. Yeah, get out there and show them what we haven't forgotten and that we're making plans for the future. Uh, yeah, that's right. Keep them on their toes. Uh, Saturday the 6th of February um, the at the Starcourt Theatre, 2.30pm, is Wild Things, a documentary about a bunch of eco-warriors and their techniques and their adventure stories and everything oh. trying to save the planet. Um, and Extinction Rebellion Lisbon, we're having a, an info stall out the front. So oh. come along and say good day to Daisy. When's that? Uh, next Saturday the 6th. So um, while the show is on next week. Oh, what time? 2.30. Oh, okay. Book your well. tickets on the Star yeah. Court Theatre site. Ta- take your transistor radio into the cinema with you. <laughs> and uh, listen to both. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Put, a, put an earphone on, just so you know you're being polite to your neighbours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's a pretty... F- jam-packed week that is that's a wildly yeah. uh, full week isn't it yeah and i've got one more exciting event that's happening um thursday next week the 11th of feb um i don't know if you know don durrant everybody oh. out there but a lot of us do and of so Legendary. he's on back roads um the, the back roads that show that's on the abc it's on southeast queensland abc back roads featuring kyogle uh-huh. and uh our own don, Dur- don durrant will be there he's a he owns the largest privately owned rainforest in New South Wales and he's done scads of bush regeneration yes. over 30 years and I've been to the property it is I can't wait to see the show because he's so dedicated and he loves the forest he's a great naturalist he knows all the species he can talk he can rattle off all kinds of interesting knowledge about the beautiful rainforest that a, he lives in a wise and knowledgeable and lovely gentleman a man, a man of the trees and a man of the people. What a, it's, it's lovely to hear him getting some, some recognition for all of his uh, extraordinary hard work over the decades. Yeah, outstanding. And speaking of recognition, since we mentioned that, I think I'm going to segue to uh, the Northern Rivers Koala Conservationist who received the Australia Day honour. Uh, just uh, in the in the in the, uh, the the Australia Day Honours list, uh, conservation has spent decades fighting to protect koalas in northern New South Wales. Northern Rivers has been made a member of the Order of Australia, so OAM Lorraine Vass, 
who was president of the community group Friends of the Koala for 15 years, was acknowledged in this year's Australia Day Honours List for a significant service to wildlife conservation. So congratulations, Lorraine, and, uh, and to the, uh, the Friends of the Koala. Well done for all of that great work and, uh, and a well-deserved uh, honour and recognition. Oh, it's great. So mm. great. It's a really good way to honour people who've fought really hard for important things. Mm. Yeah. That's right. Oh, well, that's, that's, you know, much, much deserved, well-deserved. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's pretty much my roundup of events. Uh-huh. Yeah. What else have you got uh, burning a hole in your brain there? Oh, well, the, the spider research. When they uh-huh. put little spiders with, th- um, they've spiders got little, little, you know, prickles on their legs, yes. little threads, and, and they hackle up. So they put spider, the thing is about the, how spiders use the electromagnetic um, field of the earth to travel large distances, especially when they're babies. But large spiders will do it too. Yep. They will go up with the clouds and they'll come down with the rain. They're not just being not just being blown around on the wind. They're actually using electromagnetism to fly. To lift, they get lift. They lift up and they fly on in the direction of the electrons. <laughs> and their little legs, the little bristles on their legs, stand up to attention when the scientist turns on the electrostatic charge. Well, I know m- I know the hairs on my arms and legs to, to stand <laughs> up whenever I get an electrostatic shock, but I don't float out of my chair. <laughs> no. But I g- guess that's the advantage of being a little bit lighter than I am. Yeah, hey? little spiders. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been something of conjecture for uh, a couple of hundred years. So oh, yeah. they've worked it out. It's like them. a super sp- spider superpower, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tuning into the electromagnetic field. <laughs> Fantastic. That was my little... Uh, point of interest but on uh, Dylan's media roundup there's the global forest watch map where you can look at stuff like uh, rec- uh, recent deforestation and fires um, uh, analyze historical trans- trends and tree cover loss and, and gain since 2000 so there's all these interactive maps um, for example read the latest reporting on tropical forest loss so it's a really good. I'm going to put that on the Environmentalist Anything Facebook page as a, a tool. Uh, yeah. Good. Good stuff. It's good to share around. Um, I was going to uh, just mention briefly the independent review of the EPBC, the uh, Ecological Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, uh, has been... Uh, 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 what's his name? Samuels uh, has, uh, uh, has finished his report, his review, and, uh, and delivered it to the government and there's uh you know it's quite a comprehensive uh, document which is now before them which basically says that australia's natural environment and iconic places are in overall state of decline and under increasing threat the environment is not sufficiently resilient to withstand current emerging or future threats including climate change the environmental trajectory is currently unsustainable uh, so it's uh, the EPBC do- Act does not clearly outline its intended outcomes and the environment has suffered from two decades of failing to continuously pr- improve the law and its implementation. Business has also suffered. Anyway, it goes on. It's, uh, it's an extensive document. Well worth having a look at if you're uh, an, an, like an avid environmentalist, but well worth being aware that the federal government is now going to have to respond to this and the quality of their response is going to affect the way that our environment is protected 
or damaged indeed continues to be damaged for the next decades to come it's been 20 years in the making this uh, this review so uh, well worth having a look at that I well that that's making international news and making people realize that australia is not looking after its environment no you know countries um like europe that assumed australia might be doing something have you know now discovered that that is not the case no that's right and speaking of Europe, a European Commission report has concluded that most forest biomass produces more greenhouse gas emissions than coal, oil and gas. Whoa. So burning uh, forests as a form of uh, renewable, and I'm using air quotes here, <laughs> uh, renewable energy is a furphy, or in fact a scam, mm. and uh, that, uh, you know, but burning forest biomass actually produces uh, up to 50% more um, uh, you know, uh, uh, carbon uh, than than any than any other form of uh, for mm. fuel, and it means uh, you know that this carbon isn't magically just disappeared by the the climate fairies. They don't go, oh no, that's all right. That's neutral carbon as opposed to real carbon. <laughs> it's all carbon. It all goes into the atmosphere and it all creates climate change <laughs> effects. So uh, yes. twenty three out of the twenty four scenarios the Commission's Joint Research Centre examined biomass had a negative impact on climate, biodiversity, and or both. So in, here in New, northern New South Wales and around Australia, there are a lot of scammers getting ready to start uh, to uh, push pushing this idea of biomass as a renewable energy source, and that carbon uh, that uh, forests can be included in that uh, equation. And of course, we need to strenuously resist that. Anyway, we have about one minute to go, Naomi. What would be the last thing you'd like to say before we uh, we head to? The into oblivion uh, well i can't find it now but we're losing we've lost 1.3 trillion something or others of ice cubic meters of ice since 1991 so the uh just had a quick article there about not only are we not looking after our environment in australia but we are we have massive ice loss and um and scientists have underestimated the level of sea level rise so it's uh, not looking good in terms of um the ice melting and taking energy out of the added energy to the atmosphere mm. and it's resulting in massive massive ice melting mm. and increased sea level yeah must say uh that we knew 30 years ago uh, when i was working for greenpeace talking to people about climate change back then when the uh the ipcc reports were young and new uh, they were the environmentalists, Greenpeace, and all, and many others were saying that the estimations of the the effects of uh, climate change that they were making were all very conservative, and that we would be likely to see much worse effects than what they were predicting. And here we are, 30 years later, finding that well, guess what? The grannies were right. <laughs> Wish we weren't. No, that's right. Anyway, thank you, Naomi, for shining a light on all of that for us today. Happy Saturday, everybody. Yes, indeed. Happy Saturday, everybody. Thank you so much for joining Environmental as Anything this afternoon. We'll be back from 2 to 5 next Saturday. In the meantime, you can console yourselves with our uh, podcast. If you'd like to catch up on old episodes, Environmental as Anything, wherever you get good podcasts, or have a look at our Facebook page. Drop us a line if you want to uh, tell us about an event or an action or something else that's happening. But uh, as always... Before, as we go out, I'd like to say just be gentle with yourself, be kind to each other, and remember we're all in this together. Now to take us out with his new track called Sleep Australia Sleep. He's an Aussie icon joined by Alice Keith and Simon Nugent. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Paul Kelly.
Sleep and stay asleep The night is on the creek Shout out the noise all around Sleep and stay asleep And dream of counting sheep Jumping in fields colored brown Who rocked the cradle and cried Straight asleep, as off the cliff the kingdoms leap. Count them as they say goodbye. Count down the little things, the insects and birds. Count down the bigger things, the flocks and the herds. Count down our rivers, our pastures and trees. But there's no need to hurry. All sleep now, don't worry Cause it's only a matter of degrees Fog, Australia fog Just like the boiling frog As we go, we won't feel a thing Children might know them, but their children will not. We won't know till it's gone all the glory we've got. But there are more wonders coming, all new kinds of shows. With acid seas rising to kiss coastal mountains, and big cyclones pounding, and fire storms devouring, and we'll lose track of counting. As the corpses keep mounting But hey, that's just the way this old world goes Sleep, my country, sleep As we sow, so shall we reap Who rock the cradle and cry Are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? Tune in to Environmental As Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, where 